You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please stand uh, out of reverence for God and reading His Word together. We'll start in Matthew 23, verses 13 to 26. And after I read this, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13, through the end of the chapter. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when you become the proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altars, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have not neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Therefore, these you ought to have done. Without neglecting the other, you blind gods, straighten out and out and swallow your camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones, and all uncleanness. And you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brooded vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and if you would please turn to me, turn with me to 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with the meat while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would throw
himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, and the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used his mother used to make for him a little robe and take to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all of my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you support my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me in God. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be not, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of who of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes, shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you both. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will rise, raise up for myself a faithful high priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed, before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him. For a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let us pray.
but we're not used to being warned. So it was this grave and weighty judgment. We, we like to often think of your mercy and your kindness. We, we like to think upon your beauty, your goodness. And yet we've been trained to avoid the hard words. The words that sting, the words that warn, the words that awaken. So God, we minimize the glorious things, the merciful things, the beautiful things by minimizing the horrible things, the terrifying things. So God, I pray today that you would wield this text, you would see that the weight of sin at the heart of this text, the heart of, of Eli and Eli's sons, that we'd see the horror of your judgments against this family, and that we'd be overwhelmed with the glory and the beauty of what you promise to give, and not just in Samuel, but through it in your son. So God, I pray that we would tremble and that we would marvel. That we'd be afraid, we'd sing in the face of your promises. In your name we pray. Amen. We talked last week, actually the last two weeks, we've um, started this series, working our way through first and second Samuel. Um, that at the heart of this book, we don't know what the whole story is about, but the whole overarching direction uh, of what God is giving us in First and Second Samuel, um, that what you're going to see is the story of Israel in shambles, Israel facing the judgment of God, um, Israel actually collapsing as a society, as a, as a people who belong to the Lord, collapsing, and then precisely in the midst of that collapsing, not as an alternative to it, not, not as something that just, okay, this happened, let's try again, but rather because it was God's intention, because it was God's purpose, uh, God took that collapse, took that devastation, took that rebellion, took that judgment, and right in the middle of it begins to rebuild, restore his people. And actually to rebuild something better than what they had before. That built into the promises of this story, this narrative, the heart of 1st and 2nd Samuel, it is the, of the seed that gets planted, out of which will grow Jesus and the kingdom and all the nations of the earth being gathered to King Jesus to worship him forever and ever and ever. And this is the kind of story God loves to tell. A story of brokenness, a story of apparent, absolute, object failure. And in the face of it, him actually using that failure, using that death, using that collapse to bring about resurrection, to bring life where there's only been death, to bring joy where there's been nothing but sorrow and hard-heartedness. Um, that's what this story in the end is about as we journey through 1 Samuel 1 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel over the next 32 years. Just joking. Um, but but one of the one of the things that's difficult if we set out on that kind of journey over the uh, next several several months um, is the challenge of the fact that as we look at a story about the collapse of the people of God, 
the complete collapse of worship of the concept of justice, of right rule. As we look at that story, if we're going to tell that story, if we're going to faithfully through that story, um, then I'll just say this. I'm going to be tempted um, as we work our way through this book to skip chapters like the second half of chapter 2. Because if you have the second half of, second, uh, of, of, of chapter 2, is the story of the judgment of God, uh, uh, an unbelievably severe judgment coming against a family. What we see here is, is darkness. What we see here is, is the judgments of God against sin. Sin that, admittedly, I don't think we always understand as we hear this story, like, and then like a little, little fat on their meat. But sin that was horrible, and the judgment of God which is more terrifying. And I think, like, the reason why I, as a pastor, would be tempted to skip over sections of the Bible like this one, particularly as we work our way, because there's a lot of them in First and Second Samuel, is I think that we've been trained, particularly in a secular society, to see religion, to see the Bible, to see that the purpose of um, Christianity is to give us uh, comforting feelings. Maybe a handful of bits of practical advice. How do day to day life? But what we haven't been told is, you know, actually the, the, the goal, the purpose of our gathering, the purpose of our of meditating on the scriptures is that we would see God. That we'd see him for who he is. Um, see, the purpose of Christianity is not culture war. It's not, um, it's not to make you kind of have a, a better equipped life and steps um, to a better life. At the end of the day, the very essence of what it means to be the people of God, and what we gather in this room is that we would see Him. We would see Him as He actually is, that we would know Him as He actually is, um, above everything else in life, at the very foundation of what it means to be the people of God, is an absolute resolve that in Jesus Christ, I would gaze upon the God of the universe. I would see Him for who He is, the scary parts, the beautiful parts, the parts that are undoing, the parts that um, lead us to tremble, to put our hands over our mouth and say, what in the world is this God? Who can stand before Him? And also to see the parts that cause us to fall on our face in joy as we marvel at His grace. So when we come to a chapter 2, where God sovereignly brings about destruction, the absolute destruction of a family. We would see God. Not what we find emotionally satisfying. Not what we find maybe comforting. Maybe not what we would find practically that helpful. Oh, but I would, I would plead with you. Resolve in your hearts to see the God who is there. The God who is actually there. The God who has actually acted and spoken. That he might be known and worshipped and feared and loved. See him. So may we consider together 
terrible judgments of God. And ask the question, what is he up to in the midst of all of it? And when we hold on to that question, when we hold on to that purpose in the midst of a culture that, 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 that tends to say that whatever religion is, it's certainly not worth dying over, it's certainly not worth being ostracized about, um, it, it's certainly not worth having any anxiety about. If it's not personally helpful or satisfying, we should have nothing to do with it. In the midst of a culture like that, I, I pray that we would, would say with C.S. Lewis, I would see God. Not my idea of God, not my desire for what God should be like, but that we as a people would say in the midst of the world, I will see Him. Even His judgment. Let's consider his judgments. I'll look at this in three phases. In your preacher's three-point sermon, which will quickly turn into a 17-point sermon, of which you won't be able to discern the points. First, I want us to consider what, what are the actual sins um, happening here in Eli's house. So um, the, the judgment that we're going to see in the back half of this chapter is terrible. Absolutely terrible. So, so but what sins are actually going on? We're going to get two phases. What do they do? What does it mean? Because there's actually um, some, some meaning in this text, some hints at what's actually motivating these actions, what they act, the meaning of the acts. So there's what they actually did, and then there was what they did meant. Does that make sense? It's two different things. Um, and so let's look at both of those. And the second, what is the judgment that God brings against Eli's house? Why does he bring it? And then third, where the chapter ends. If God is going to wipe out the family of priests, the ones that were meant to stand before God, representing the people of God, the ones that were supposed to stand before the people of God, representing God, if God's going to wipe them out, as he promises to do in this text, then that creates a massive crisis. Massive crisis. A, a, a crisis that, if left unresolved, will lead to the disintegration of the worship of Yahweh on the earth. Please hear the weight of that. If the priests go away, there will be no worship of God on the earth in this day, in this iteration of the covenant. When this threat lands on Eli and his sons, it's not just a problem for them. It's actually a problem for us. So, so how does God deal with that problem? Because he doesn't leave that problem unsolved or unaddressed in this text. So first, the sins of Eli's house. First, you'll notice that they eat the fat. There's no problem with fat. Please hear that. It's very important. You should eat lots of fat. <clears throat> but these priests, um, as uh, how the way the sacrifices work, um, is that the animal sacrifices were brought before the Lord. 
um, and however the sacrifices were to be presented, um, they were to burn in such a way that the fat belonged to God. So be comforted before we get to the hard judgment stuff. Um, if you are a person who likes to eat the fat, you are like God. And so um, that, that is how sacrifices and worship function within Israel. Um, sacrifices were brought to God, and the, um, and the fat, God says, the fat belongs to me, that's mine. I want the fat to burn offering. I want the fat in the animal sacrifices. Um, that is what comes to me, and then a portion of the animal sacrifices, but not the fat, um, would then be given to the priest and be the portion that the priests themselves were allowed to eat and consume. Um, and so, but rather than allowing that to happen, two, these two sons, Phineas, um, uh, Phineas and I should have written it, Hophi, the great name. I'll remember that now. Phineas and Hophi are taking for themselves the fat and eating it. This fat belongs to the Lord. We also see that they are sleeping with it. Um, the ESV translates it, the women at the tabernacle, who were serving at the tabernacle. Um, these, uh, these are actually virgins that served at the tabernacle. Um, they are seducing and sleeping with um, the women who the virgins who are serving at the entrance to the tabernacle. So you have those two sins. The third sin is you have Eli's rebuke. You might wonder, why is that a sin? Well, you've got two very high-handed sins being performed by priests in the worship of Israel. And the Father comes in, in addressing those sins. I want you to listen carefully to the nature of his rebuke. And he said to them, verse 23, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. And if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I, I think the sin implicit in this paragraph is that Eli didn't rebuke his sons with any measure of strength or clarity. But one of the, one of the realities it is um, in this rebuke is it's just a vague, hey, stop doing evil things. I'm hearing from other people you're doing bad things. This might offend the Lord. Don't do evil things. If you offend the Lord, who will intercede for you? The, the lacks specificity, a stop doing this, stop stealing the fat from the Lord, stop having sex um, with, the, with the women, the virgins who serve at the tabernacle complex, stop doing this, start doing this. There is in Eli's review no strength because there's no specificity. Things get uncomfortable. 
behaviors, real actions, real attitudes that the person in front of you might actually have. And so if I address it with any measure of specificity, I risk offending the person I'm talking to, or I risk um, them having the, the, the strange notion that I would ever condemn, or that God would ever condemn, a certain set of practices, a certain set of behaviors. And so we talk in vague, sweeping notions about the nature of sin, and we refuse to address it with specificity. We refuse to say about people's behaviors what God would say about those behaviors. Maybe we do it because we're afraid of being seen as unloving. Maybe we avoid it because we're afraid of, of looking proud or as a, as a judge. But all of that stems from a, a pretty remarkable misunderstanding of the meaning of humility. See, I don't see the judgment over anyone. Rather, I, it, 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 it's God because. And humility and love requires me to speak with clarity and precision and say what God says about things. It is no help to my son or to my daughter if I don't address with specificity and clarity their sin, their behaviors, their actions. I mean, think about it this way. So, um, we lived on a very, very busy street um, when we first moved to Denver, called Federal Boulevard. Very busy street. Um, my friends lived on Federal Boulevard as well. <clears throat> um, we had a fence around the yard, and sometimes we would go outside of our yard, um, and we had little kids, and we needed to be, it would not be um, it would not be clear or strong or helpful for me to tell my four-year-old, hey, just, you know, stick around the house. Like, just vaguely, generally, just stay close to the house. It's close, what's close to me? I mean, the middle of the Federal Boulevard is relatively close. We moved from Texas, so it's way closer to Texas. It lacks specificity, it lacks clarity. Now, what my son, particularly, um, needed to hear at age four was like, hey, do you see this sidewalk? Don't go on the other side of this sidewalk. Like, right here. Do you see this gate? Do not open the gate and go outside of it if you're not with mom or dad or someone else is with you. An adult over the age of 18, exactly, is with you. Great specificity. Do you see the difference? I'm not actually helping him understand um, the, uh, what he's doing wrong. I'm not actually providing real clarity of the lines he should cross or not. I, 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 I'm not serving and loving my son if, um, if when he's four, he kind of wanders out into the middle of federal, um, and, I, and I haven't provided any boundaries, and I just come up and fly off the handle. Like, that's not, that's not good. But what if I did that? Well, what if um, out of nowhere, like Carson, she's three, one day just decides, you know what? I like that little bean. In the middle of federal, there's like flowers growing there. I want to see a flower. So she begins to wander out of our gate. Um, I've never said anything about don't go outside of the gate. I've never said anything about don't go across the sidewalk. I've never said anything about don't go on the street. Um, she wanders across the street, and I find her in the middle um, boulevard, whatever those things are in the middle of the street. Um, she's just picking flowers, everything seems great. And I come out the front door freaking out, just screaming and yelling and flying off the handle. 
<laughs> just, just yelling at her about how foolish this was and how stupid this is. That wouldn't be loving, would it? And what if, what if in the end, like, I didn't tell her to go outside of the gate because I was afraid that she might think I was being very legalistic? Three-year-old daughter, tell her, hey, don't go outside of that gate. Concerned, she might think that the basis of my love for her is on whether or not she goes outside the gate. Concerned about legalism, so I don't tell her about the gate. That's not love. This is what love is, what Eli does to the sons. There's a flagrant disobedience against God in very, very specific ways. They're facing harsh and terrible judgments from the God of the earth. And Eli, rather than very specifically telling them, hey, this is what you're doing. This is what the judgment of God will come against. He says, hey, people are saying that you guys are doing really terrible things. Stop it. Even the emphasis on that. And here's stuff. Like people, people are talking about what you guys do. You need to stop doing stuff. So they're eating the fat, sleeping with the virgins who serve the temple. The weakness of their fathers reviewed. And then I want you to notice this in verse 12. It said, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That this is the exact, the, the, another way to translate this phrase would be to say that the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. It's the name that the scriptures give to Satan. The embodiment of wickedness and worthlessness. It's just an interesting little piece of. Like the parallel of, of the Hebrew of that verse is to say that um, they're sons of Eli, meaning they're sons of Eli. Which is wild if you consider Eli, Eli isn't like that bad of a character in these chapters. But the text is clearly wanting to point to this idea that these wicked sons are sons of worthlessness. But Eli has been a worthless father to him. What does all this mean? The first clue is to what this all be like. What's actually underneath this? Is, is God really going to wipe out a family, destroy the priesthood um, because of sex and sex and fat? Um, there's actually more going on even than meets the eye. So the, the first clue uh, to what's happening here is the name of Eli's son, Phinehas. He's actually named after character in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Israel is coming into the promised land and they're uh, beginning to prepare themselves to enter the promised land. They're surrounded by pagan nations. Um, as they're surrounded by pagan nations, um, here's what happens. And it keeps happening to the people of God throughout all of history. Um, the, the, the worship of God and the, the instructions on what it means to be the people of God, worshiping God, begins to blend together with um, the, the paganism, the idolatry in the surrounding cultures. And one of the things that was central to that particular pagan culture um, was sex was an act of worship, an act of prayer. Public sex. Sex happening in the temple, before the idols. Um, and so Israel... Uh, you can imagine that kind of just took off for Israel. It was a big 
big addition to the worship services. Um, and, and so that begins to take place in Israel's worship before Yahweh. Um, and, and, and God begins to wipe out the people of God. He begins to bring judgment. And as judgment is beginning to come and fall, people are dying. A man named Phineas sees another man bringing a, a pagan woman into the camp, into the place where God dwells, um, into the place where Israel is gathered, seeking forgiveness, seeking that God would purify them of their idolatry. He, he brings a woman into the camp um, and, and begins to have relations with her. And then Phineas, grabbing a spear, kills the bull. That ends the plague that's wiping out Israel. The heart of the problem that Phineas, the old Phineas, the Phineas for Numbers, is trying to solve um, is this idea that worship had been, had been corrupted. The worship of God had, had, begun, uh, had, had been turned into this kind of blending of worshiping idols and worshiping God. And the old Phineas was a zealous man who put it into but Eli's Phineas, his son Phineas, is not a zealous man. He actually corrupted worship in the exact ways that Phineas was fighting. So it gives us a clue that, hey, the, the, the weight of what's actually unfolding with Eli and his sons isn't merely around a set of actions, but those actions are tethered to the meaning and the corruption of the worship of all of God's people. The problem at the heart of this is God. And how they were treating God. And how the worship has become about something other than God. So what do we, what do we make of the, of the virgins? Well, the virgins serving um, at, at the tent of meeting, they represented, it wasn't just, hey, we need um, extra hands here to serve. Um, let's go find some virgins. Um, for the really good survey of the tabernacle. Um, the, the idea is that the virgins represented holiness, that the holiness of the place in which they served. Um, they were those who welcomed travelers, they were those who um, served and took care of the, the, the outside of the tent of meeting. Um, but they also represented the inviolability of the holy holies. That they represented the untouchableness of the holiness of God. And in other words, they, they weren't just serving a particular function. They represented a, a reality in, in what it means to come before the presence of the living God. You don't just waltz in there. You certainly don't do with it whatever you want. No, he is holy. He is inviolable. He is absolutely untouchable. And the service of these women was meant to be a, a, a visual reminder to the people of God of the holiness of God. The beauty of God, the glory of God. So to take these women and sleep with them is a mockery, a foundational mockery of what God Himself is saying to the people of God in the heart of worship. And last, stealing fat from the Lord. What's, what's that? It's a subversion of worship itself. It's actually taking the whole purpose and meaning of worship, worship is supposed to be, and flipping it on its head. It was putting myself at the center. 
my satisfaction, my desires, what I want, as the central meaning of what's supposed to be happening in worship. But rather than putting God and His glory in His name and His desires and what delights Him at the center of worship. The past 60 years in American evangelicalism, experiment has been tried. That experiment has place at the center of the meaning of worship. Phrases like worship experience. But with the considerations of worship pastors and pastors and directors and productions, it's placed at the center of our worship, you, me. We've taken the fat for ourselves. We've made the center of worship, in some cases, politics. And lots and lots and lots of cases, you and your emotional experience. We've subverted the center of what the worship of the church is to be about, namely God. God and His glory, His name. His renown. Oh, that we would find our joy in Him, that we would find our hope in seeing and beholding Him. Oh, that the task that we engage in here on a Sunday morning would not be to, to come and be entertained, it would not be to simply come and feel good, but rather, oh, the task, the vocation of what we do in this room every Sunday is that we would gather here, that our lives and our songs and our worship um, and our prayers would be a sweet aroma in the presence of God. When we gather in this room, our worship is for Him. Our singing is for Him. Our prayers are for Him. This sermon is for Him. Even as we gather at this table, this table is for Him. And the beauty, the beauty of what we've been called to do is this is precisely how God feeds us and nourishes us and cares for us. When all of our affections and attention is fixed on God. The priests, Eli's house, whose sole job in the world was to facilitate that kind of worship among the people of God, subverted completely God pronounces a fearful judgment on Eli's house. Your sons will die, your house will pass out from the priesthood altogether. The promise given in the Exodus of your house would minister before me, be a house set apart to be the, the, the means by which the people of God would worship God. And that was stopped. In fact, a day will come in which I will keep members of your household alive only so that they might be humbled by begging for some of the wealth and riches and blessing that I'm bringing, going to bring to my people. They will be lightly esteemed, he says, because they have hated me. 
this trade is likely to seem doesn't mean It could be greatly esteemed, but the city will be like half esteemed. It means you'll be regarded lightly, or be, be regarded with, with no regard at all. It's a, it's a state of shame. In bringing this judgment on Eli's house, here is God's representative to the people. Here is the representative of the people of God, God Himself. Here is the sole mechanism by which people can worship God and come to His presence. Here is the sole mechanism by which people can go and, and, and their sins can be atoned for and dealt with. Here is the sole mechanism by which the law of God can be taught with authority beauty and goodness to the people of God. God has just promised to wipe them out. You see the problem? The crisis at the heart of this judgment. And listen to the Lord. Verse 35. And I, God, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. In the midst of that darkness, in the midst of even surrounded by this judgment, God speaks in the middle of it and says, I will raise up a priest, and interesting, this language, who is after my own heart. It's the exact same language that God is going to use to speak of the raising and the choosing of David to be his king, who he will raise up, and David will be a king after my own heart. So God says, in the midst of this collapse, this darkness, the apparent destruction of worship itself in the heart of Israel, I will raise up for myself a priest. Now, I'm at the beginning of this text, uh, over in verse 11. Verse 18. Said those ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed the linen ephod. Now Samuel's not a member of Eli's family. Um, he hasn't received kind of the priestly vocation. But the interesting thing that happens um, that, that the text kind of points to, that might be considered kind of a weird little detail, right? That Samuel's wearing a linen ephod. You know who wore linen ephods? Prophets and priests. So already, in the midst of this family where there is rebellion, the turning of worship in on itself, Wickedness, already a seed has been planted. Even as God is going to destroy this house, he's planted a seed right in the midst of that house of the one who will be a priest. Priest after God's own heart. One who will be a, one who will be a prophet. A prophet who speaks only as God speaks. But I actually think this is about more than sin. 
I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointing forever. This is about Samuel, but Samuel is a down payment of the coming of our high priest. Prophet, priest, king, Jesus, son of the living God. Even the collapse of Eli's house, the priesthood. God has planted a seed, and that seed will grow to a tree that is the son of the living God himself. One who leads God's people in worship. The one who is and offers the only acceptable sacrifice before the Father. The, the, the one who speaks because he actually is the very word of God. See, in the midst of this judgment and destruction, God has planted a seed that will live and thrive and grow into the tree. In this tree, all the nations of the earth will be fed. May we tremble before the judgments of God. May we hope the precious and glorious and good promises of God. Let's pray and prepare for